This is Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. Your host is Chad McAllister, helping you become a product master, creating products customers love. Get ready for higher performance, for the doctor is in. Hello, this is Chad, and hello, product masters. Today, we're talking about how to understand what provides value to customers by giving them what they need to solve a problem or complete a task. And this might sound a little bit familiar. Clay Christensen described this as the job to be done. And it's a topic that our guest knows very well. That's David Duncan. He's the co-author of a jobs to be done book called Competing Against Luck, which was written with Clay Christensen. And he's more recently wrote a book called The Secret Lives of Customers, A Detective Story about solving the mystery of customer behavior. Love the subtitle there. We'll talk about why that is. Dave is currently a managing director at InnoSight, where he helps leaders of organizations create customer-centric teams and innovation strategies. And if you want to go back to anything that we talked about, we take detailed written notes for you. We also create a one-page action guide to help you put into action anything that you hear. You'll find those resources at productmasterynow.com slash three. Four, five. Dave, thanks for joining us. Chad, thanks for having me on your podcast today. Oh, my deep pleasure. The connection to competing against luck was compelling for us to talk, and I'm sure that product masters listening will find your insights very helpful as well. My first question for you is a little, frankly, personally motivated by studying physics, and she's thinking about maybe going on for a PhD in physics, probably do a biophysics kind of research. She's been involved in some of that already. And somewhere along the way, you got a PhD in physics from Harvard, which I'm curious about. People come into innovation and this product management world from all kinds of places. I'm just curious about kind of the connections that you've seen going from your physics work into helping companies with innovation. Sure. Well, I went to graduate school to study physics primarily because I was fascinated by the subject. And I've always been motivated by a desire to understand things as deeply as I am capable of. Had a great experience in school, discovered while I was there that loving physics and loving being a physicist are two different things. And that's not a negative statement about science careers. I think that it's great. I just didn't have, I think, the passion for research you need to be really successful in it as a career. And so I was I was looking uh, for opportunities outside. My interests had evolved more in the direction of business. was fortunate to get a job in one of the big management consulting firms. I worked there for a few years, and that was a way to retool and, and understand business better. And then happened upon InnoSight when it was fairly small, about 15 years ago, and I've been there for about 15 years. And as you said, we focus a lot on helping companies figure out how to innovate more effectively. Mm-hmm. In terms of the connection to physics and the role, I think that you know it, it helped me become a better problem solver, better thinker, more quantitative thinker. And it's it, it gives you a certain literacy and technology-related topics that enables you to get your head around what lots of different types of companies do. So those are probably the main ways it connects. And, you know, science and engineering are obviously at the heart of a lot of great innovation that happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just curious about the connections. Physics has always fascinated me. My background is engineering, and I always appreciated working with the physics students at school. And as an undergrad, I was helping a grad student with the physics project. And I, I found that they just thought about things a little bit differently th- than some other people did, and I appreciated that uh, that perspective typically. So, okay, thanks for sharing that a little bit. So, you and Clay Richardson wrote this best-selling book called "Competing Against Luck" a while ago, and now you have this uh, more recent book, "The Secret Lives of Customers," which is also about jobs to be done. W- what does that book add to jobs to be done knowledge for us? 
First, I like to call out the co-authors on Competing Against Luck. There was Karen Dillon and Toddy Hall were other authors on that. And I'll also like to call out Bob Mesta, who I think was on your podcast recently. I listened to that podcast. He was. I thought it was absolutely fantastic, as it always is when I listen to Bob and Bob speak. He he was an influence, I would say, in that book. And we, we covered some of his stories and ideas in there. And he's one of the, the pioneers in, in this field of jobs to be done. So in terms of how this new book is additive, you know, I had a couple of goals when I wrote it. The, f- the first was to create a book that was very broadly accessible. You know, so so competing against luck, I think, is pretty broadly accessible, but but it's it's more about the idea of jobs to be done and the value of jobs to be done. And I wanted to create a book that targeted a broad audience, but that was really designed as a teaching tool. So it's aimed at teaching anyone working in any role in any type of organization the concepts and tools and techniques they need to understand customers, either the ones they're serving today or the ones the ones that they want to serve. So in developing it, I thought a lot about what is it you need to learn to be able to do that confidently? And importantly, how can I teach those things? Right. And and I and so it, it in some ways has a narrower focus than competing against luck, which was kind of about the big idea, but it's really about how do you do it? And I put a lot of time into thinking about what it is you need to learn and, 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 and how could I teach that in a way that you know, would be engaging and broadly accessible. And jobs to be done is a core idea in the book. But you know, you've heard this quote that people repeat a lot. People don't want a quarter inch drill. They want a quarter inch hole. It's often a, a quote that people bring up when they're explaining jobs to be done. Well, jobs to be done itself is a quarter inch drill, right? It's, it's not a quarter inch hole. It's a solution, right? So question is what what's the job for which you would hire jobs to be done and in the book i put jobs in the broader context of what that quarter inch hole is which is that people need an effective way to understand customers so it's it's primarily about this teaching vehicle the other thing i think is somewhat new or at least additive is i wanted to assert an approach to jobs to be done that made sense to me and that's consistent with the with what i and others at Insight have learned and developed over the years the field of jobs isn't just one thing, right? There are different approaches, different schools of thought on how to do it. And a lot of you know brilliant people who work on it for a living. And I think everyone agrees on the basic idea of what a job is and some of the elements of the language and method, but there's a lot of innovation that happens in that space and different ways to approach it. And I'm not saying any of them are better or worse, but I wanted to put forward the way that we've been doing it in a site and that, that I think, you know, is, is a helpful way to, to approach it. And then finally, there are some new tools and frameworks in the book, including how you apply jobs in a more strategic application. So not just for product development and innovation, but also for strategy. And uh, there's some new frameworks and tools for how to do that in the book. Okay. And as a teaching book, this is teaching through story, you know, much in the way of the classics, uh, One Minute Manager or Who Moved My Cheese, you know, is trying to teach through narrative, correct? It does. Yeah. The, 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 the inspiration for the book for me was the books of Patrick Lincioni, like The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and the format of his books, which I love. They are a fictional story for about 80, 90% of the book about some you know, company or leadership team that's having a problem. They work through the solution of the problem by applying whatever the tools and techniques are that he's trying to teach. And then at the end, he steps out for about 10 or 15% of the book to explain the concepts directly. And I thought that would be a great format for this type of a book on this topic in particular. So I wrote it in that format. It is primarily a fictional story. It's 
it's written as a detective or mystery story, playing on the parallel of I've always seen between doing customer research and detective work. And it even follows some of the conventions of a mystery novel. There's clues along the way and kind of a surprise denouement at the end. And uh, one of the main characters is a self-described market detective who goes out and tries to understand customers and what he calls market investigations. And as that story unfolds, you know, the reader can see directly all of the tools and techniques he uses along the way and learn by, you know, observing through the story. And I thought that would be, first of all, it was, it was a lot more fun to write. Hopefully it's more fun and engaging to read. And it's it's particularly well suited to this topic because I, I, I think one of the things that's challenging about learning, you know, how to understand customers, how to have conversations with customers is it's best done by observing somebody do it, who knows what they're doing, and then reflecting on what you've observed with that person and then trying it yourself and getting some feedback on that. And by laying it out in a fictional story, I could depict what it feels like when you're really doing it. And you can kind of observe the characters as they do that and then observe the characters reflecting on what they've done as a way to to teach and, and make it feel more realistic. Mm -hmm. It is engaging, very much so engaging to read the book and go through the ideas and uh, see how it jobs to be done as applied through that process. And the setting is a coffee shop, coffee retail business. And I spent a lot of time in coffee shops, so I, I very much appreciated the context as well. We'll be back in just a minute. This podcast is sponsored by the RPM Experience, the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. In just nine weeks, meeting 75 minutes a week. Product managers, teams, and leaders become product masters, creating more value for customers, their organization, and themselves. You will build a broad foundation of product management knowledge, get everyone on the same page, while also improving collaboration and renewing a focus on the customer, all resulting in higher performance. Participants feel empowered and more confident about their work. They learn how to create value for customers and revenue for their organization. One product leader who used the RPM experience across a global organization said it is the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed. Many organizations have benefited from the RPM experience, and you'll find them listed at productmasterynow.com RPM. Go to the same URL and schedule time to talk about how Chad and his team can help you and your organization. That market detective, so this is a detective book. You talk about how to better understand the, the customer's need here. Why should product managers, those of us involved in innovation, think of ourselves maybe as market detectives? I use the expression market detective as a, a plot device in the story to describe the person who is aspiring to go out and understand customers. And the book has a particular emphasis on the value of one-on-one -on -one -on -one customer conversations. I refer to that as the atomic unit of customer research techniques because it's the foundation for all others. And if you can learn how to do that well, you can learn what you need to know to use other techniques, whether it's ethnography or focus groups or uh, surveys or even big data techniques. It, you can get the foundation of what you need to know by learning how to do one-on-one -on -one interviews really well. And they're also often the most valuable thing you can do and almost always relevant in every use case. And I think for product managers, learning how to do that can be helpful in many ways. If you're able to have those conversations, you can hear directly from the customer and develop products that are more connected with their jobs to be done, developing features that matter to them. 
that reflect an understanding not just of their functional jobs, but the, of their emotional and social jobs, which are often the ones that make products the most sticky and most differentiated. You can make better prioritization decisions about what kinds of projects you want to work on and minimize, I think, the temptation or tendency that all organizations often have to be technology-led or product-led in the decisions they make about what to work on and what to resource and be more customer-led. Yep, very good. And this is not that notion that we're just asking what customers need, right? The the jobs we've done perspective is we're trying to deeply understand what they want to accomplish, what their want is, their task is to accomplish, the problem to solve, what creates value for them. And that's why this approach is so very useful, is it helps us get deeper insights so we can indeed create solutions that are valuable for them. And you share in this book, as a market detective, there's three things for us to do. And you frame those around language, method, and mindset. And I'm hoping we can, we won't go into details on all of them, but hoping you can take us through those three things that we kind of need some competencies in to really know how to put into place jobs to be done. Can you walk us through those? Sure. Back to my earlier point about thinking through what is it people need to learn, right? So I assert that you need to learn a language, a method, and a mindset to be able to confidently understand customers. The language, so why is the language so important? Where, well, every craft out there has its own peculiar language and vocabulary that practitioners speak and understand. So if you're a lawyer, you talk about things like torts and criminal and civil law and injunctions and all of those things. Uh, if you're an accountant, you talk about debits, credits, cash flows, balance sheets, and so on. Physicians have a whole range of specialized terms. Yep. And each of these languages has its own specialized vocabulary along with rules for how the words relate to one another. And it should be that way with the craft of understanding customers. But I think surprisingly, unlike in the case of those that I just mentioned, I don't think there is a standard, widely accessible language that guides interactions with customers. There certainly are things that are used in specialized market research departments or data science departments. But what the average person needs is a language that guides you to ask the right questions, which lead to the right kinds of insights at the right level of detail. And the right questions are those that are going to help you understand what really matters to customers, the problems they want to solve, the goals they want to achieve, you know, the jobs they want to get done. And I first and foremost think about jobs to be done as an element of that language. And I think that's one of the reasons it's so powerful is that it, it's a sh- there's a sharpness to it that orients your you know, market investigations on the things that you really need to understand about a customer. I mean, there's lots of things that you could understand about any person or, or organization, right? But what are the things that you need to uncover about them so that you understand their problems and goals well enough that you can find ways to help them that are going to matter to them, right? And the language is the foundation because it, it, it defines what those things are you're trying to learn. And it's not just jobs. It's, you know, things like circumstances and, you know, help wanted signs and, 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 and so that... And I think one of the ways that jobs methodologies vary is they have different, you know, say they're different dialects of the language, right? <laughs> different nuances. And so I think this book asserts a language, again, that I found to be useful and powerful. And I think it overlaps with other languages out there, but it, 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 it's different and important nuances from my perspective. So that's the language. 
right? So once you have the language, then you need a method for discovering, organizing, interpreting that information, right? And here I lay out in the book what I consider to be the core thought process for understanding customers. So I wasn't trying to write a comprehensive field manual for how to do every type of market research activity, but rather focus on what what's the backbone that underpins any market research activity, which is there are these four big questions you're trying to answer about the customer circumstance, customer jobs to be done, what they're doing today and you know how they evaluate quality for solutions for those jobs, and then what are the help wanted signs. And so I, I introduced that as the kind of universal backbone to the methodology that you can apply with all kinds of different tech. And then some new tools for how you organize and interpret what you learn. That's the method. And then finally, if you've got a language, you've got a method, you need to go out and apply it with the right mindsets. And there are a lot of things you could say about mindsets that are useful for maximizing your chances of learning something useful about customers. But the ones I highlight are things like being genuinely interested in the person you're talking to, which seems kind of obvious, but it's easy to forget, you know, being authentic and being willing to share some of your own self uh, in the conversation. And then importantly, going into those conversations with, you know, borrowing a term from Zen Buddhism, a, a beginner's mind. So you need to go into them with a kind of blank slate and to the extent you can set aside your assumptions about what you're going to learn and what the answer is going to be and be receptive to being surprised. Yep. Very good. Okay. I want to go back through these just a bit. The language aspect, there's been lots written about the voice of customer research that was, I forget the original paper on that might've been in the eighties or so, and how that relates to what's going on this jobs to be done movement. And some people are a bit more that they take stronger positions at times on the semantics involved here, that the aspects of language are really important and not to go down that that trail too deep, deeply. I just think introducing the jobs language is very helpful, right? And that famous Steve Jobs quote about you can't just ask customers what they want, right? That's not what we do to solve problems. But we try to understand the problem more deeply. We try to understand the job that the customer is trying to accomplish. Do you have some examples of how that job is represented? Maybe you can pull from the coffee shop story in the book about the, the job that needed to get done. Well, sure. It's, it's interesting you say you spend a lot of time in coffee shops because I spent a lot pre-pandemic. I spent a lot of time in coffee shops as well. And, and I'm just starting to reintroduce coffee shops to my routine. And I wrote a lot of this book in coffee shops, uh, actually. And the reason I, I chose a coffee shop as the industry for the fictitious company is that everybody can relate to it. You know, everybody has been in a coffee shop. And it's actually quite a rich context for diversity of jobs to be done that people are hiring it for, right? And, yep. and so you can think about why do we hire coffee shops, right? You, you might go into a a coffee shop on a on a Saturday morning at a or say a Wednesday morning at eleven a.m. and there there could be you know forty people in it or twenty people in it and they're in in a sense they're all hiring the same solution right because they're all there you know sitting you know drinking a coffee or some variation of coffee so they're hiring the same thing but they have just radically different jobs to be done they're hiring it for right so so in the story you know the mystery so the, the setup of the plot is there's this chain of coffee shops regional coffee shops that's grown like crazy for the past decade they're about to do an IPO and go public and get capital to expand nationally 
But right at that moment, their sales start to plateau and, and, and even decline. And they're just befuddled. It's, it's, it's what I call a market mystery. What's going on? And so the, the story is about how they, they solve that mystery. And so they do um, a series of, of market you know, customer interviews and coffee shops and in other environments to understand, well, why are people hiring the coffee shop, right? And one example is there's a, a student goes there Monday, Wednesday, Fridays after class to do her homework. And it's, it's just a place to get work done. And, you know, that seems maybe not too insightful, but actually there's a lot of nuance associated with why she chooses the coffee shop over all of the other places she could choose to go do homework, whether it's the library or the dorm or her room or, or you know, some other place. So that's one example of a job to be done. You know, then there might be a business person there who is in town doesn't have an office there, needs to hop in and send some emails and get some free Wi-Fi, buys a cup of coffee as the the rent for the table that he or she is going to use and hiring it, you know, to get work done. Other people might hire it to socialize, to meet new people, to take a break during the day, to treat themselves to a little luxury. A lot of people will go to a coffee shop as kind of a ritual, like a morning ritual as part of their, their routine. So just you know, very diverse jobs that you hire the same solution for. And I think that's the power of the jobs lens is that it, it, it shines a light on those things often very efficiently. Yeah. I'll give you my job, right? The, when I go to the coffee shop, (laughs) as I hang out in them quite a bit, sometimes the job is to have a convenient place to meet others and just like the atmosphere for many others, but more times than not for me, I'm there to get work done. And I, I was the kid in college that would rather work in the pub than the library because I liked the noise and commotion. And the coffee shop is the same way. I actually do better work by having some of that noise and commotion and hearing the rumble of the background conversations. I don't find them distracting, but actually in some sense focusing. So that's important to me. And I don't drink coffee, right? I occasionally have some because I appreciate the caffeine, but I don't choose a coffee shop based on how good the coffee is, which is probably what they're focused on. I am much more in tune with just how does it feel? Do I like the layout of the furniture? Are the chairs comfortable? Are there power outlets where I need them? Those things are higher on my list. I could have said everything that you just said. I'm exactly the same way. And, <laughs> and you know, I tried to rep- and there was a lot of subtlety in what you just said, right? In terms of the nuances of what matter to you and what don't matter to you. And that's those are other aspects of the language and the method that you're able to elicit when you do these market investigations using this approach. And, you know, the the character that I was just describing, this student who goes there, she's kind of channeling me because I I, I like that background noise. I I don't like it to be completely silent when I'm working. Right. But the background noise, it it can't be too loud. Right. Or, Or it'll be too distracting. It can't be too soft. Right. So it has to be just the right level of background and and that would be something that for that job to be done, you know, for someone in our circumstance or her circumstance is is an important quality benchmark. Right. And 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 the type of thing you need to uncover about the job in addition to the job itself. 
Good. Okay. Moving on to your method. So this was discovery, organizing, and interpreting the information from customers. I have two perspectives on this, right? So the one that you offered, right, we kind of want to know that roadmap of the path we're going down because we need to get insights from the customer. And we do that by collecting a better understanding of what they want to accomplish, right? What their task, what the problem is. And on the other hand, I also want to, and you may disagree with me on this, um, suggest to uh, listeners that you can also just start right? And maybe leveraging the mindset a little bit more heavily of, yeah, just be interested in people, be curious about them and curious about the problem. Because I find some people get really wrapped up in apprehension about doing customer interviews. Like, well, what if I don't ask the right questions? You know, this is my one chance to get it right. Well, it's not. You give us a framework, which is really helpful. And the book will help tease that out very much through the narrative. But you can also just go be curious about people And like in this example, we're talking about the coffee shop, sit down and ask someone, so how often do you come here? You know, why did you come here today? Where else do you go? And I think if you're curious, you can do a reasonable job getting started, finding out what customers are up to. Again, I'm in violent agreement with you on that. And and I want to, I guess, clarify one thing. In the method I lay out, it's, it's very consistent with what you're describing, because what I'm not saying is, here's the recipe of the questions you should ask in this order. Rather, I'm saying, what is it you're trying to learn in the conversation? And, 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 and even if you're going to go in and just be curious about someone, which I love that mentality, and I think that is a key mindset to have. It's like it's far better to go talk to somebody than to over prepare and, you know, worry about the formality of it. And is it the right design of of research and so on? Just go have a conversation. But when you have that conversation, you need to be sensitive to when, like, how are you going to know you learned something useful? Right. You, you, You need to know what useful information sounds like. Right. And so that's why I. I try to distinguish between the questions that you're trying to answer and the questions that you ask. Those are different things. Uh, like so, so the questions you're trying to answer are things like, what are their jobs to be done? And what circumstance are they in narrowly and broadly in their life that influence those jobs to be done? You know, how do they think about certain cer- current solutions for those jobs? And you don't have to ask them all those questions. In fact, if you ask them what their jobs to be done on, they probably would look at you like you're crazy because it wouldn't make any sense. But but you 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 need to be alert to that information as you have a conversation. And I think about the best customer conversations as it, it's a series of prompts where you're not. It's not Q and A. It's more prompts to get a conversation going. And then as they talk, they unfold in, in random, spontaneous ways. And, and, but, but having this, 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 this compass of the things you want to learn enables you to slot in, you know, the spontaneous things coming out of the conversation into categories that are, you can then feed into whatever it is you're trying to accomplish. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I was thinking back, you mentioned Bob Mesta's interview we did recently, also a key contributor to this whole job is to be done theory. And I have shared his example many times that we talk about briefly on the podcast episode about the difference between a Snickers and a um, Milky Way candy bar. And just in simple conversations, which just about, well, why, you know, what were you thinking when you bought the Milky Way of all the things you could buy? Or what were you thinking when you bought the Snickers of all the things you could buy? And learning that people actually choose them for very different reasons. You know, the job they're trying to satisfy is very different. And just being curious about that, you'll get there, right? And you do a few interviews and you get a few more insights. And then you talk to some more people and try to narrow things in. 
And this does lead us to the mindset elements uh, we're talking about, to that curiosity. The other one you shared was the the beginner mind. And I think this is so very important to set aside those assumptions. You know, you have coined this market detective concept, which I am fully embracing now, because we're coming to it, hopefully without preconceptions, right? If a detective approaches the, the crime, if it was a crime, with thinking who's guilty, you're probably going to miss a lot of other clues. And as product managers, it can be easy for us, especially with me, with my engineering hat on, with that background, to kind of get focused on the solution and get enamored with that. And if I get focused on the solution, then I stop paying attention to some elements of what's important to the customer, right? And that notion of fall in love with the customer's problem instead of the solution. So tell us just a little bit more about how, how you think about the beginner's mind being applied to jobs to be done. The beauty of jobs to be done is that if if you apply it correctly, it, it forces you to have a beginner's mind, right? Because it, 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 it orients you towards understanding the problems and goals of a customer. And my simple definition of what a job to be done is, is it's either a problem somebody wants to solve or a goal they want to achieve. And if you start there, right, understanding those things about the customer, you try to understand their context, uh, as Bob calls it, or the circumstance, it's the same concept of their lives. That, you know, completely decouples you from the products that you're selling, right? So you start the conversation there. That's the information you're most interested in getting. And it forces you to be in a beginner's mind if that's where you start, right? You're not even starting with solutions. You just want to understand their context their problems and their goals. Mm. And so I think it, it, it's not the complete solution to getting in a beginner's mind because we're always going to be tempted to flip back to the solutions that we're anchored to. But I think the, the questioning of the jobs and the circumstance leads you to have a beginner's mind pretty effectively most of the time. Excellent. So there's some synergies there between the process and this notion of the beginner's mind and setting aside those assumptions. I appreciate that. Okay. Well, thanks for taking us through this a bit. This was a book that I uh, enjoyed looking at, and as listeners know that have listened for a long time, I tend to not look at books before I, I talk about them with guests because I want to stay curious as well, you know, in the moment. And I, I did start the book. I haven't finished it yet, but I'm very much looking forward to now. I found an engaging way to learn more about this, and you present some really helpful tools through the through the narrative, and then uh, dig into those further in the explanation in the back of the book. So, want to recommend. In the Secret Lives of Customers. And as I said, I love the su- subtitle, a, de- a Detective Story About Solving the Mystery of Customer Behavior. As product masters know, I love a good innovation quote. What do you have for us? And tell us what that means to you. So I keep a folder of inspirational quotes. So I, I looked through it to find one that might relate to inno- innovation. And I pulled out this one from Winston Churchill. Success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm, which I thought was was a clever quote in, in a Churchillian way. But it, it very much relates to innovation. I'm sure everybody uh, listening to this podcast can relate to that, which you you have to be willing to fail. You have to be willing to learn from failure. And you have to be willing to do that again and again without loss of enthusiasm. <laughs> and uh, ultimately, that's what, what leads you to success. Absolutely. And we learn along in the process. That's very important. Great. Dave, tell us how people can find out more about the book, certainly about the work that you do, what Insight's up to, anything there. Sure. So there's a website for the book, www.marketdetective.com, which has more information on it. You can sign up for a newsletter. I'm going to be sharing additional tools and resources over the next uh, weeks and months. 
and links to purchase the book. If you do purchase it and like it, it's super helpful if people uh, leave a, a review on uh, Amazon. And you know, please connect with me on LinkedIn and Twitter. I'd love to engage with people on these topics. Finally, you know, Innosite's website, innosite.com, has a lot more information about jobs to be done, lots of other innovation-related topics and other things I've written. Wonderful. Dave, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you writing this book and the previous insights from Competing Against Luck that you contributed to and helping us become better market detectives. Thank you, Chad. I appreciate you having me on. Thank you for listening to Product Mastery Now, where product leaders and managers gain product mastery through practical knowledge, influence, and confidence. By listening, you are becoming a product master, creating products customers love. Find additional resources at productmasterynow.com. Keep innovating.